Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you here this morning. As we get started, someone made a sign and says, please silence cell phones. Um, so I'm not joking. When I told you last week that people were like going to jump somebody if their cell phone went off, somebody has made a sign. I don't know who did. <laughs> and so, oh, do you think Susan put this up here? Probably. Oh, you know, you saw her. All right. So please silence cell phones. That is, that is for your own safety. Um, I'm excited about this week. We had a number of really good questions after last week's class. Jane just said, we need a whole other class on last week's class. And so we're going to go over a little bit of the stuff that we uh, sort of covered, but maybe implied expanding just a touch on some of the things that we talked about last week, which I love. And so we'll start off with that before we get into chapter 18. Um, but before we do any of that stuff, let's open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for a real pretty day. Sunshine that fills us up, that gives us energy to live life that you've called us to live in your world. We ask that this time opens us to the way that your spirit is working in us, opens our minds to new ideas and new ways of seeing your world that will hopefully change us for the better. God, we ask your prayers, your presence, your blessing, and your healing touch on all of those that we love who need it most. As we go from this place, give us the strength and courage that we need to be witnesses and to be living testimonials to the truth of your gospel. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, admittedly, there were a few things that I touched on pretty quickly that might have been new ideas or whole concepts that were unusual. And so I have a number of questions that people asked before, um, between last week and this week, and I'm going to try and touch on a few of those ideas. Um, one is about Paul. We're going to do that in a second. But the good news is that chapter 18 is not perhaps the densest chapter that we are going to study. And so we do kind of have a little bit of flexibility today to spend a little more time on some of the ideas from last week. So we're going to begin with a question about what's going on in the world at this time. Great question where someone said, okay, so, okay, so we looked at the map last week. We're going to check it out again. Last week we looked at this map, which was more or less the central Mediterranean, North Africa down here. You've got Italy, Greece, and Turkey here. And Paul is making a trip up from Turkey into Macedonia and down into Greece. In chapter 18, he's going to go from Athens. So he ended chapter 17 in Athens, speaking on Mars Hill. He's going to go from Athens, not very far, to Corinth. Most of chapter 18 is going to deal with Corinth. And at the very end, he finishes his second missionary journey by going back to Jerusalem and ultimately to Antioch over in Syria, which is over here. So as I noted, chapters 16, 17, and 18 are Paul's second missionary journey. He kicks it off in the last verse of chapter 15. And we've spent three weeks, this being week three, 
on his second missionary journey. Chapter 18 is not quite as heavy as chapter 17 was. As we remember, chapter 17 saw Paul in Athens debating philosophers about the approach to Christianity that he is committed to. That meant that there were a lot of religious ideas out there in the world, and Paul was, in essence, tasked with arguing for the Christian understanding of God in the world. So one of the questions that I got last week was, what else is going on in the world at this time? What other religions are out there? Because what really is Paul speaking into the cultural context? So what I want to do today is talk about where global religions are in the first century. Most of you are going to be familiar with the global religions I'm going to talk about. There are five biggies that I want you to know about as 21st century people. Hinduism and Buddhism, that's the East, and then you've got the West, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, all right? So we're going to start with the East because that was first. Hinduism and Buddhism. And then in the West, first was Judaism, then Christianity, and then Islam. Now, there are quite a few other religious traditions that are important in general global history, but they might be a little distracting for our conversation. And so I'll reference a few, but what I really want you to know is that Hinduism is the oldest global religion. Hinduism started probably 15,000 years ago. It is seriously old. And Hinduism started as a random collection of cultural traditions. The word that I want you to know is Vedic. The Vedas, V-E-D-A, Veda, Veda would be writings about the gods. Vedic would be the ancient expression of Hinduism. So there were thousands of years where they, there were Vedic writings about the gods. Another word that you may want to know is Brahma. Brahmanism would be another way to describe, I can't speak and write this at the same time, Brahmanism. Brahman, B-R-A-H-M-A-N, which you might spell it differently, you might see it spelled differently. These are words that are transliterated from other languages, and you can't really spell them one particular way. That's just the way I spell it. Brahman is the idea that God is everything. And so the root of Hinduism is that God is everything. Okay, that's the highest level. Everything is Brahman. If you dive a little deeper, that middle level differentiates between our human reality and the divine reality, which we totally get. We understand, and we, if we are honest, and maybe you track this with me, I've always been fascinated with Hinduism because I think so much of it 
really kind of matches Christianity. Now, theologically speaking, we, we don't like that, so people say it doesn't, but ultimately you've got these three le levels of understanding in Hinduism. The first is God is everything, the end. Well, that sounds good to us. I mean, God's everywhere, God's everything, that, we don't have a problem with that. Then middle level is there is a difference between our human reality and the divine reality. Okay, that kind of sounds good too, right? I mean, we, we see a certain thing and we know we don't see everything. And so there is a divine sacred reality that we don't understand and cannot see. Okay, sounds good. Go to the third level in Hinduism and there are lots and lots and lots and lots of gods because we are all different people and we experience God differently. And we experience God in unique ways, and those unique ways can be represented in different expressions of God. So when Hinduism is described as a polytheistic tradition, that's where we get the thousands and thousands of gods idea, is that we're all just very different people and we experience God in different ways, and the particular way we experience God becomes God for us, even though at a higher level, we know God's everything, and we don't specify God in that particular way. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> how this manifests itself is that Hindu families, typically families, not individuals, Hindu families will have a space in their home that is functionally a little chapel or shrine. They will have a family God of some kind. How many of you know Catholic families that have a particular saint they love. Yeah. It's not that far off. Catholics do not worship Mary or the saints, but Catholics do pray to them. Why do they pray to saints? Because there is an understanding within Catholicism that they, they will not like my description of this, but whatever, I was raised Catholic. So <laughs> there's an idea in Catholicism that God's busy and we need intercessors to, in essence, help get as much of God's attention as we can. And so <clears throat> if you get cancer, what's one of the first things you're going to do? Ask your friends to pray for you, right? Of course you will. There are some really, really holy friends that we call the saints who will pray for and intercede on your behalf as well. And so just like you would ask your friends that you see alive around you to pray for you, you may ask, you may pray or talk to a deceased loved one, maybe your mother, your grandmother, someone who you can't see anymore, but you may have that moment where you talk to them and you say, just pray for me. Well, that's all right. In the same way, you might ask a saint that the church has noted for their amazing holiness to pray for you too. You may ask Mary to pray for you and intercede for you. And then, of course, you can pray to God. All of that's good. None of that is a problem. In a different but not too dissimilar way, Hindu families have a way of understanding God that makes sense to them. That becomes the family God. But none of those Hindu families would say their family God 
is God, because God is everything. Now, where this causes some problems for particularly Protestants, if God's everything and everywhere, then God can also be in this podium. God can be in this rug. God can be anything. And so what some Hindus will do is they will literally do things like bring together mud or dirt or you name it and pray God into some physical representation in front of them in order to do worship and then leave it and walk away. And that sounds really weird to us. Except what do we do every Sunday? Don't we pray God into bread and wine? And when we pray God into that bread and wine, don't we believe that God's really present in that bread and wine? So much so that we eat it, not because we are hungry, but because we want what has changed to be physically in us. So it doesn't sound quite so strange, does it? We may just use different words and symbols, but in a pretty similar way, we link up in some tangible realities to the way that Hinduism has actually been practiced for thousands and thousands of years. Now, we're not Hindu, we're Christian, but I just want us to be able to see that what might look weird is at its essence kind of not too far away from what makes sense to us. So Hinduism's the oldest that we have record of. It's around the 5th century BCE, so about 7,000 years ago. Hinduism goes from a Vedic oral tradition to something that begins to be more clear within the culture. So it was very indigenous. And as the people in the continent of India begin to coalesce around more higher level systems of government, so too does the religion. This is happening at about the same time that the Semitic peoples are beginning to transition into what we know as Judaism. So about 2000, 2500 BCE, we get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's 4,500 years ago-ish. Judaism comes along as probably the second oldest tradition, really. So you've got Hinduism, then Judaism in world history. We know from our own Old Testament traditions, I hope at this point, those of you who have been tracking God's story that we do on Sunday mornings, have learned that pretty much nothing in the Old Testament was written until the exile. So all the stuff that happens, most of the stuff that happens in the Old Testament, which is, of course, creation and Noah and the patriarchs and enslavement in Egypt and the Passover and the Exodus and the kingdoms and all of that stuff to the exile, it was all oral tradition until they were physically in Babylon in the exile. Then they wrote it all down. Why we know that this happened that way is because when we go back to some of those stories, there are multiple versions of the same story. Why are there multiple versions of the same story? Start from the beginning. 
Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Two different creation stories. Why? Did people think creation was done in two different ways? No. But there were some Jews who told one story, and there were some Jews who told the other story. They're both really good stories. Let's just keep them in. That's what happens when oral traditions become written. And that's what happened to both Hinduism and Judaism in about the same time period. They had these oral traditions that began to be unified, and so you get a couple different versions of functionally the same story. Those are the two religions that are truly ancient religions. The other three are more modern traditions. So let's go back to the East. There was a Hindu prince in Northeast India, sorry, Northeast from your perspective, India, who decided that Hinduism should be different. If you remember what we talked about last week, where time in the East is cyclical, for thousands of years, Hindus believed that time repeated itself. And so the idea of reincarnation comes about. And there was a moralistic philosophy around reincarnation that we're probably all familiar with. If you do good in this life, you come back better. If you do bad in this life, you come back worse. So all of the ants and cockroaches and things like that, they did not do very well last life. People did pretty well. So did other animals, like what? Cows. That's exactly right. So depending, there was really a sliding scale of better and worse. Well, there was a prince named Siddhartha who decided that actually that cycle can be broken because there is a deeper truth that can be discovered that we know as enlightenment, that in Hindu is called samsara. He found this deeper truth, and he broke the cycle and went into a different reality, and we call him Buddha. Buddhism is rooted in Hinduism, but is very different because there is no... Hinduism does not have this salvation idea like we do in Christianity, but it did express a saving from the repetitive cycle of eternity into some place that kind of sort of sounds like heaven, where you are in complete relationship with God, with that Brahman. And forever you are in that good place. Buddhists do not have an idea of heaven. It is not actually heaven, but it is certainly similar to what we might describe as heaven. So there's your Eastern traditions. If you pop back over here, we of course know Christianity comes about with Jesus. So Hinduism, Judaism, definitely ancient. Buddhism comes along before Jesus, 
So G- Christianity is technically the fourth of the big five in history. Jesus comes along, does all this stuff. We're reading about right now the first century and what Paul is doing in his missionary journeys. The fifth, Islam, does not come about until the seventh century. So there's a long time, hundreds of years, between Jesus and Muhammad. So although we need to know that Islam came out of this thread, Islam is not a factor in the spread of Christianity in the first 600 years because it's not there. It is important to note that one of the dangers we have in Christianity is being anti-Semitic by accident because, in a way, what we say is that the Jews misunderstood what God really wanted us to be doing. Jesus clarified that, and now we know the truth, and the poor Jews just don't. It's dangerous. We can do that without even intending anything bad because our basic story is we figured out what they missed. Well, guess what Islam's story is? The same, but to us. And so what Islam's fundamental story is, is that God came to humanity through prophets, through words that humans spoke. Yet people missed that, didn't quite get it. And so God sent his son in the flesh to be on earth to make sure we really got it. And we sort of did. But then the church screwed it up by putting too much theology around it. Remember I said before, theology complicates something very simple so we don't actually have to do it, right? Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. Like, the end. But we don't just want to do that. We want to make sure we do it right. And so we create all these rules and parameters and theology such that we don't have to actually love everybody. We only love the people that we've decided we should or could and all of those things. So God, instead of coming through people and then coming in person but then leaving, actually wrote this stuff down, which is why the Quran is perfectly the word of God. Not inspired, no one's stories, Muhammad just provided exactly what God wanted us to hear. You cannot screw that up. It is written down. You Muslims read today in the same language that it was written in the very first time. There's no translating because it is perfect as it is. And so it's very easy for us to become the ones who missed what God was trying to tell us And so he came back again and just wrote it down so we cannot screw it up. All right. Within the context of Paul, do not worry about Islam. It's not around for a while. But in the world, these other four traditions exist. There are some smaller traditions that we could talk about, like Confucianism and Shintoism and that sort of stuff, but we don't really have to worry about that. Okay. Any questions before we jump in? That was a very good question. Yes. Yeah, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to the Mormons, Jesus sailed over here and buried a book in upstate New York. Um, I say that jokingly, but 
holy crap, that's funny, right? Um, I remember the first time I, <laughs> I learned about Mormonism, and I thought, what? So the whole story is Jesus and some of his Jewish people like sailed from Jerusalem to New York and buried a golden book, and then John Smith discovered it a couple hundred years ago. I mean, I guess is that any crazier than he died and then he came back to life? I mean, I guess not. But, man, that sounds silly. Anyway, so North America, no. At this point in North America, you've got the land bridge has closed. So there are indigenous peoples, particularly on the western side of North America and South America, that have come from Asia. And they are stuck now because the Ice Age is over and there's no way to physically get back to Asia. So this is the period of time where they're expanding from the west to the east across both North America and South America, and it's also the time when the South American indigenous peoples are sailing west into the Polynesian islands. So, sorry, this is, you guys have like tapped all my stuff I'm a nerd about. So, if you look at all the South Asian islands, Conventional wisdom said people came from Asia to populate all those South Asian islands. It was proven in the 20th century that actually people came from South America, Peru specifically, and sailed all the way across the Pacific in boats as big as this stage, which is nuts to me that they could do this, and populated all those South Asian islands. So South Asian islanders have more genetic resemblance to South American native peoples than they do to Asians. So that is happening over in the Pacific, really disconnected from whatever's going on in Europe. We won't really connect with them until, of course, you've got your first people traveling around, you know, Magellan and Columbus and all of those other people. All right. Yes. <laughs> yes. So the question is about the Hindu caste system. Um, I will, so if you don't know this, the Hindu caste system has at least five distinct castes where you get, you go from the top caste, which would be your professionals and your wealthy people, all the way down to your lowest caste, which are the untouchables. And we might be familiar with the untouchables, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> At least it's, it's a really nice ringtone. Um, so the untouchables we may be familiar with from early, mid-20th century because you had Gandhi, in essence, working to support justice and equality for them, followed immediately by Mother Teresa. Her ministry was really to the untouchables. And when I say untouchables, I physically mean you could not touch them. That was how low they were in the cultural context. And the caste system was perpetuated for thousands of years through marriages. So if you were born into a particular caste, you married within that caste, unless you could somehow marry up, which was difficult to do because the caste above you doesn't want someone from your caste in their caste. It happened occasionally, but very rarely. So Although Hindus had this, by the way, I should note, we talk, we've talked about in here about how 
Jewish can mean different things. That can be a cultural definition. It can also be a religious definition, and it can be both. Hindu is the same way. Hindu can be ethnic and cultural, meaning an, a person from India. It can also be religious, meaning someone who follows the tradition, and it can mean both. So Hindu and Jewish, because of their ancient nature, actually means different things, so you sort of have to clarify what you mean. But Hindu, as an in Indian people, have this system. The only difference between them and what happens in Europe and then in the Americas is that they claim it. We just don't like to say it. I mean, we did the same thing for a long time. We just didn't quite call a spade a spade, and they did. Where are the Incans and the Mayans? So all of those North and South American or Central American native traditions are coming out of Asia. The peoples are developing those as they go through their own development over a few thousand years in the Americas. Of course, Incans and Mayans are Central American. You've got Aztecs coming around, and then you've got all the native peoples that we know about in North America. They all have similar religious traditions. Um, when we talk about the height of Aztec, Incan, and Mayan civilizations, that's after the spread of Christianity. That's going to be more around 1,000, because when all of the European explorers come over to the Americas, they are coming at the time when those, those cultures are really strong. So they develop this around 1,000, and by the time 1,400, 1,500 comes around and the Europeans are meeting them, they're very strong. The only reason Europeans, well, let, me, let me just ask, why were Europeans actually able to conquer the Americas quickly? It's one answer. Disease. That's it. We couldn't fight them. We had no, we, I say we, I mean, some of us may not count Europeans as we, um, but the Western Europeans that traveled over to the Americas didn't have the numbers of people to fight off the native peoples. They didn't have the weapons. They didn't have the technology, but they did have the sickness. And so they brought, we, they just brought all of the junk that had been populating all over Europe for so long. And the native peoples were killed off because they got sick and they had no natural immunity to fight all this bad stuff the Europeans had. Then after they were weakened because of disease, things like military battles and stuff like that worked. All right, we will get to Bible study. Um, oh my gosh, okay. So, as you can see, I can geek out really easily on this stuff. Okay, so let's jump in. Second half will be all about chapter 18. So as I said, this is the conclusion of Paul's secondary, second missionary journey. One other question I got last week was, was Paul alive when Jesus was alive? Absolutely yes. Paul was younger than Jesus, most likely, but Paul and Peter are going to be about the same age. Basically, same generation of people. So Paul's more or less the same age as most of the apostles that we know about from the Gospels. Paul doesn't come around to following Jesus until after Jesus' resurrection, but he was definitely alive. So we're good. So Paul and Corinth. So let's go back to our map. Paul's been in Athens. He goes to Corinth. And Corinth is super close. 
there is a little isthmus right here. As you can see, Greece is divided sort of north and south. You may remember um, things like the Spartans were down here in ancient Greece. This little, little land bridge between what is functionally the continent and this large, nearly island at the bottom of Greece is connected by a very, very small land bridge. In ancient Greece, Corinth was a very important city. But around the time Alexander the Great fell, Corinth was more or less deserted. So we're talking about ancient Greece as, at its peak is between 350 and 250 BCE. All right, so 350, 250. Around 250, Corinth starts to decline and is functionally abandoned for about 200 years. However, Julius Caesar in 50-ish BCE, 45, refounds Corinth as a Roman city. So even though it is in Greece, Athens is a Grecian city. Corinth is a Roman city. So even though it's in the wrong country, it is completely Roman. And Julius Caesar restarts Corinth because of that little land bridge and it was so much easier for boats to go from, think Panama, right? Boats could go from Italy, go right over that little land bridge, and sail all the way to Asia Minor so much more easily than they could go around the southern part of Greece. And Corinth capitalized on the very short distance between the two oceans. What they would literally do is a boat would come in to the port of Corinth, they had a way of taking the boat across the land, that little bit of distance, and putting it in the water in the Aegean Sea and letting it keep go. Nowadays, there is an actual canal that runs that distance, like the Panama Canal. It's not quite as dramatic and interesting in technology. It's just a ditch. But now you can actually sail a boat through a very skinny, I, I can only imagine, kind of scary, um, little canal because it's like two cliffs that go all the way down to the water and you can sail a boat through one side to the other. At, that, at this point in time, though, they literally lifted the boat across the land, but they made a lot of money doing it. And so Corinth was like any city that grows quickly and becomes wealthy. They had too much disposable income and they got in trouble. And so when Paul shows up to Corinth, they need a little Jesus. So Paul shows up and does what he typically does, which is he begins by teaching in the synagogues. I'm sorry, I usually do this. Paul in Corinth is the first bit of chapter 18. The second bit of chapter 18 is functionally Paul ends his second missionary journey. And so he goes back to Jerusalem and Antioch. And then we've got this odd little bit at the end with a guy named Apollos. And he's functionally in Ephesus. And we'll talk about him. So Paul gets to Corinth. And if we remember what's been happening in the last two chapters, Paul shows up in a city. He goes to the synagogue. He teaches in the synagogue. People get mad. They run him out of town. That's happened multiple different times. He shows up to Corinth. It doesn't happen. And it doesn't happen for a few reasons. One, Corinth is, as I noted, a relatively young city. It's also a big city. 
when Paul shows up to Corinth, there are likely 700,000 people living in this city, all right? 700,000 people is a decently large city now. 700,000 people back then makes Corinth just about the most important city in the empire, save maybe Rome itself. Corinth is that big a deal. It's just too big for people to create a riot to run him out of town. It's just not too, it's just, that's, that's what small towns do. Corinth was just too big for everyone to get up in arms about some guy who's t teaching about some Messiah in the synagogue. No one cared. Paul was able to befriend a couple people that are very important for us to know, Aquila and Priscilla. So Aquila and Priscilla were a Jewish couple that were living in Corinth at the time, and they were living in Corinth because they had been cast out of Rome. So finally, 35 minutes into the study, let's turn to chapter 18, verse 2. Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. And every Sabbath, he would argue in the synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. He finds a couple that become, in essence, his partners. Aquila and Priscilla, Jewish, adopt the idea of Jesus as the Messiah and become his partners. Now, a few little notes. They come to Corinth because Claudius had ordered Jews to leave Rome. Let's put this in historic context. First emperor of Rome, Augustus. Augustus rules for quite some time. Then we get Tiberius. Tiberius is likely the emperor who was alive when Jesus was killed. Augustus was probably when Jesus was born. Tiberius when Jesus was killed. Then we get to Caligula, who served a very short period of time because he was crazy. And then we get to Claudius. So we've gone through to the fourth emperor of the Roman Empire, is now emperor at this time when he goes to Corinth. Claudius casts out all the Jews from Rome because of the impulsere cresto. So impulsere cresto means the instigation of crestus. What is that? The Jews were beginning to fight amongst themselves because of the instigation of Crestus. It is very possible that some nice Roman wrote Crestus, which is C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S, instead of Christus. It's just one letter off. They made the I and E, but it's probably because these Jews have heard about Jesus and they are arguing amongst themselves about his messianic identity, and they're bugging the Romans. And so Claudius says, just get out of the city. We don't want you here arguing with each other, leave. And so people like Aquila and Priscilla go to the other big city, right? You got to get out of New York. Where are you going? L.A. 
I mean, it's sort of that kind of thing, right? I mean, you're, you're going to the other city because you are a professional and you need to be able to sell your stuff. So it's important to note why they're there and what tent maker means. <laughs> tent maker, remember tents were not only for people who are bored in their homes and want to go sleep outside like it is now. Um, it's tent maker likely is a leather worker and leather was critically important to all different kinds of industries at the time. Leather was, was what you needed to do to sail a boat. It's what you needed to outfit a military. It's what you needed to protect yourself from the elements. You name it, leather was important. Paul, surprise, is apparently a leather worker. We didn't really know that until this point, but now we have discovered that Paul can work with leather. It was very common at this time that a teacher would have some trade where they were able to make money and support themselves so that they could then go teach on the side. And so it's perfectly reasonable that Paul actually knew how to do something to make money. Apparently, he knows how to work with leather. A quick note that we won't discuss now is that when Claudius comes out of power, fifth emperor of Rome, is our best friend Nero. Nero comes into power and Nero resends all the stuff Claudius did, which includes Jews living in Rome. So ultimately, Aquila and Priscilla, who will travel with Paul here, we'll see that in just one minute, will ultimately return to Rome and become critically important to helping develop the church in Rome and helping them define themselves in very profound ways. And one of those ways is by sending letters to Paul and Paul sending them letters back, including Romans. So the letter of the Romans is almost certainly a letter to that community because of his connection to Aquila and Priscilla. So these are important people. So Paul stays in Corinth a long time, a year and a half. And in that year and a half, really establishes himself, preaches a lot, saves a lot of people, becomes part of the community, until, of course, the Jews finally get fed up, and they bring him in front of the court and the proconsul from Rome to charge him with acting illegally. Now, when he's brought in front of the court, he meets the proconsul, Gallio, and Gallio says he may be doing something that you don't like, you Jews don't like, but he's not breaking any laws, and so go away from me. And it's one of the first moments when Rome officially seems to approve of Christianity. Mm, it's a little strong to say that that had a big impact, but it is, in history, the first time Rome officially says Whatever you Christians are doing is not against Roman interests. Gallio is an interesting person because his brother is the philosopher Seneca, who is the tutor of Nero. And so it is very likely that Seneca also knows about this Christian stuff which would mean Nero was taught about it as a boy. And so when Nero begins to seriously persecute the Christians here in a couple, in 10, 15 years, Nero does so knowingly. Just a little note. All right, that's the end of the Corinth section. 
Any questions about Paul in Corinth? Then we will move on. Paul concludes his second missionary journey by hopping around to a few places. He will ultimately end up back in Syrian Antioch. Remember, we have two Antiochs. Syrian Antioch is the big one. Paul leaves Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla, and on his way out, cuts his hair. Let's look at it. It's, it's a big moment. So chapter 18, verse 16. I'm sorry, 18, verse 18. Paul said farewell to the believers in Corinth and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. At Chentre, he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. Okay, let's talk about what that means. Paul has not been in Jerusalem for a long time. At this point, it's been two years. In Jerusalem, Jews are to behave a particular way. But when Paul's been out of Jerusalem, he has literally let his hair grow. I mean, he's kind of probably shaggy and all this other stuff. When Paul returns, he's got to make sure he looks the part. I'm going to draw you, you don't have to turn to it, but in 1 Corinthians, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 20, Paul writes this. Excuse me. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself was not under the law, so that I might win those under the law. So when he's in front of Jews, he's got to look like a Jew. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so that I might win those outside the law. So when he's with Gentiles, he looks like a Gentile. I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings. This means that Paul really ingratiated himself into the Roman culture when he's in Corinth in order to try and bring as many Romans, Gentiles, into the Christian faith as possible. Now he's going back to the mother church in Jerusalem. He's got to stop looking like a Gentile and look like a very good Jew. So he cuts his hair in order to make sure that when he walks back into the Jerusalem church, he's visually accepted back in. So as we keep going in chapter 18, we'll look at verse 19. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, Priscilla and Aquila. So they stay in Ephesus, and we know Paul loves the Ephesian church. Paul, though, does not stay there. He set sail from Ephesus, and he landed in Caesarea and went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church. Then he went down to Antioch. So what Paul has done very quickly is he has sailed from Corinth over to Ephesus, which is Turkey, and down to Jerusalem. Caesarea, if you remember, is the port city northwest of Jerusalem where the governors of Judea would reside. It was the little Roman town, so Pontius Pilate would have lived there and other governors of the time. So he landed in the big seaport, Caesarea, and traveled on land to Jerusalem, 
and then left Jerusalem and went all the way north into Syria, which we know Syria is obviously north of Israel, of uh, Israel, yes, and found his way back to Antioch. So he has hit a few big churches here, Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, and Antioch. Those are really the big churches of the time. And his second missionary journey ends there. Any questions about that? We don't get much more than just the travelogue, besides the haircut. Okay, in the last few minutes, I want to talk about the last section of chapter 18. We get introduced to an interesting character named Apollos. Apollos sort of comes out of nowhere, and he appears to be a very effective preacher and teacher, but he's actually not quite doing it exactly right, and that's what's interesting about him. So he pops up, and he's in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, he's teaching something that kind of looks like Christianity, but he's not quite getting everything. We hear that he is teaching something about baptism of John. So let's look at verse 24. Chapter 18, verse 24 says, Apollos was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. It's a very interesting moment. Apollos apparently gets that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's out there teaching that, but he has somehow missed something about baptism. So he talks about the baptism of John. Remember, John baptized with water, but someone was coming that would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what Apollos has somehow missed is the theological developments that have happened over the last 15 to 20 years. It's important for us to remember, and I think this is a great opportunity, we might think, because we've got the Bible, that everyone was working from the same playbook. They knew about Jesus, they knew about the theology, they were all going out with the same manuscripts to then teach people about it. That was not what was happening. You had individuals, like Paul, who were going out doing their best, but occasionally they would go in a direction someone like Barnabas would go in a different direction, or Silas, or Luke, or you name it. Apollos is one of those guys who has perhaps got the fundamentals. Jesus is Messiah. Okay, he's on that page. But he's not quite come along with where we could see the Jerusalem Council, for example, and other groups may have made decisions. We understand that the church very quickly got to the idea of Trinitarian identity because we see that at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew ends with Jesus saying to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All right, so by about 70, the idea of Trinitarian baptism is solid enough to where Matthew incorporates that into his gospel. But not everyone has followed every single decision point up to that 
up to that Trinitarian idea. And Apollos is one of those people. But Paul has apparently done that, has taught Priscilla and Aquila, and so when Priscilla and Aquila, remember he dropped them off in Ephesus, they go to the synagogue, good Jews, and they hear this guy Apollos, who is a burning with enthusiasm. So he's got some charisma, but he's just not quite hitting the right mark when it comes to the theology. And so Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, almost like coaches or parents, and say, man, you're doing such a nice job, but you've got a few things you need to connect the dots a little bit more for everybody as you teach them. And Apollos listens. We know that Apollos is not only successful in Ephesus, but the place Apollos is really successful is back in Corinth. So at the end of chapter 18, we see that Apollos travels to Corinth, and they write ahead of him for the community there to accept him. So in essence, Priscilla and Aquila have become these ambassadors, and they write to the church that they know back in Corinth to say, this guy's coming, he's good stuff. So Apollos shows up in Corinth, and Apollos really develops that church in a significant way. But, and this is not an axe, but it's important for us to note as we connect all these dots, one of the big problems that happens in Corinth is the conflict between people who really liked Paul and the people who really like Apollos. I know we know nothing about that in churches. You've got the founding pastor, right, who did things and said things in a particular way, and then the founding pastor's successor comes in and is also doing some good stuff, and that second person hears all about how the first person did it, right? Paul didn't do it that way. Paul didn't say it that way. Paul didn't, and then you've got then people who have come in since second pastor showed up. They really like what second pastor does, and they're like, shut up, people, about the first pastor, and so <laughs> what happens in Corinth is that Paul started it, and Apollos develops it, and they start to fight amongst themselves in that community, and they write to Paul. I don't know who writes to Paul, but it could be the people who liked what Paul did. They say, Apollos is messing your stuff up. And Paul writes back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. You don't need to really worry about it. Paul writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, for we are God's servants working together, and you are God's field. It's a really nice moment in that letter to address something that is so human. Every church everywhere goes through this kind of thing. And Paul just shuts it down and says, this is not the point. We all do what we are meant to do, and we come and go, and the field is nurtured, and it's really about what God's doing through all of us together. And so even if you're reading through Acts, and you, like, Apollos kind of just pops in and out, he actually has a much bigger impact in the general development of Christianity than Acts may imply. So, 
there's the end of chapter 18. Um, sorry to have spent so much time at the beginning on all that stuff, but if you've got more questions, make sure you write them down or email me, and I'll get to them next week. It's great to see you all. Have a good week.